Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Agogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to an hour of science. Uh, you're on 3 Triple R In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's good to see you. It is lovely to be hanging out in the real world. It's, uh, it's going to be a great show today. Everyone is in the studio for a change, um, basically because we've all been there and done that with regards to COVID, so we're kind of, okay. Uh, oh, and there she is. Glad Sorry. to turn your microphone on, Dr. Laura. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, I'm surrounded. I feel surrounded right now. There's so many of us in here. Yeah, uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. It's all happening. Uh, we have got a guest coming up in a little bit from the Bureau of Meteorology. We're going to be talking about uh, La Nina, I think, uh, or as you know, I like to refer to the Southern Oscillation Index, which uh, our good friend Andrea Peace from the Bond taught me about 15 years ago and I haven't forgotten it. So some stuff going on there. But uh, Ewan is in especially this week because some report – on the environment, something or other came out. I don't know. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> apparently we should be paying attention 30 years ago. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that later in the show, but we're going to start off with some news. Laura, do you want to start us off? Oh, you've just got back from traveling. You were stuck in the UK for a while while you were sick. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, it's just the usual. You go to a conference, you wear an N95, but then you go to a conference dinner and then everyone gets COVID. Huh. And then you have to, you know, push your flight and quarantine in a hotel it's good times but yeah. i'm back you're back and i've been reading the news and there was there was a study this week which caught my attention um i thought it was super cool i've forgotten how to do this i'm not you speaking do. to the microphone no, properly. Much i'm just i'm just like chatting to you but um <laughs> the, the study was published in um as nano and it was scientists at the university of pennsylvania and they created a prototype of micro robots that can um clean floss and rinse your teeth in an automated way, hands-free. Now, um, before you get too excited because you hate flossing and you think that's super cumbersome, the motivation behind this was for people who lose, you know, dexterity, the elderly and disabled populations. So... um, you know, when we think about technological advances, we generally don't think of the toothbrush because not a lot's changed since the 15th century, really. Yes, we had an electric mm. toothbrush, you know, from the 60s, but the original were pig bristles from the neck um, onto bone. And actually, the kind of design actually looks very similar to the kind mm. of plastic toothbrushes we have today. So in um, in this study, they used micro, micro robots or, um, you know, sometimes people call them nano robots. It depends on the size. And they're being using, they're now being used increasingly, you know, we think I think by 2030, we'll have um, nanorobots delivering drugs, for example, cancer treatments or detecting disease. But these ones specifically for the teeth, they were um, constructed of iron oxide nanoparticles. And so these particles are shaped and controlled by magnetic fields. So what they could do with these, um, and if you kind of just want to have like a visual of what does this look like, um, I kind of looked it up, and it's sort of about half the size of a AAA battery, and it's like a swarm of black dots. And these are the iron oxide nanoparticles, and they can be controlled by an external magnetic field programmed to sort of brush and also then change shape. So they shape shift, and then they can elongate and go through the teeth. And what's cool about... through the teeth? Yeah. Well, sorry, between. Oh, between the teeth. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, between. So they can can stretch and... Yeah. (coughs) Look out, pulp. (laughs) 
Yeah. Even it, it is pretty science fictiony that this black swarm can kind of change yeah. in all these different ways. And there's also catalytic activity <laughs> whereby these nanoparticles also release antimicrobials so they can kill bacteria. Right. Yeah. And so they trialed this on 3D printed teeth, as you do these days. Um, it's 3D, 3D printed, but also mounted um, human teeth. And it, it didn't matter sort of the shape or the size or, you know, it could be, a, you know, these particles, they swarm and they're adaptable to the different shapes and sizes of people's teeth. And they could effectively clear um, biofilms, which is sort of, you know, what the dentist is trying mm. to do when they're really kind of drilling at you. So they were really effective in doing that. Um, so the next stage now is trying to get, you know, work out, you know, what's the delivery going to be? Is there going to be a mouth-fitting device so, um, so these swarms can, you know, be utilised in patients? And that's the next step. But um, I thought that was a really cool new use of microbots. I was, I was really taken by it. But, of course, personally, I just... <clears throat> couldn't be bothered flossing, and I thought that would be a really great idea, but I don't see it happening for us anytime soon. But <clears throat> my question is always how they get them out. Yeah, well, in case one <laughs> nanoparticle goes rogue and is yeah, sort of but you still know, left you put all these things in there, and how yeah. do they leave? You know, how do they do? I do they have to go through my system? Like, I'm not sure about that. Well, it's it's all programmed, so <clears throat> you kind of just put on this <clears throat> little kind of like battery sized you know thing, and then it's it's all automated in a program, yeah. controlled externally. Yeah. So they should all come back together. Nothing could go wrong. Shane. Nothing, Nothing could, could go, go wrong. wrong. I, I will say, you know, I'm disappointed in some of the you know the, the lack of te- technological innovation in the tooth toothbrushing sort of area because if you think of sh- you know razor blades for shaving, yeah. you know, we've gone from one blade to five. Mm. I mean, that's extraordinary. You and know, they've got amazing ads for um, them too. Amazing, you know, like five <laughs> blades. If the first four miss at all, the fifth one, you know, like, I remember thinking when I was a kid when I think they first pulled out the, the double <clears> blade and it was like, whoa, two blades. Yep. Nothing's getting through. And then the market, you know, the marketing kept going. And I have this image in 2030 when we're talking about of 27 blades, you know, like just <laughs> – and where's the where's the toothbrush equivalent of this? I know. You know like it's it's know, not happening. With an electric, you still have to hold it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All that hard work. I you bought thing, Laura. That <laughs> is that I want hands free. Well you want to be typing, you're busy. Yeah, you're, you're doing busy. your research, you're trying I want to be doing stuff. other things while something's brushing my teeth. I think for the me. flossing thing is a big win. I'm yeah. not oh, a big flosser, it? I have to say. Yeah. And I still yeah. don't have a feeling in my mouth, so I'm putting that down as eugenics. But uh <laughs> Fluoride in the water, mate. Yeah, and fluoride in the water too. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I think uh, a win for not having to floss would be very popular, I suspect. Bring on those robot nano armies. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. While they're in there, they can take care of the arteries. Clear them out. Yeah. Ewan, what do you got for us? I'm going to start with a positive story to balance out the the other (laughs) end of the day or the other end of this show. Um, But it does link quite nicely with our guest who's coming up who will be talking about La Nina events Um, because, of course, we know we have this big challenge with climate change. And we also know around the world, including Australia, we have a problem with conserving our mammals. And this is a really mm. cool story about beavers. I love beavers. Oh, yeah, they're Who great. doesn't like beavers, right? Beavers are the best. So um, beavers, unfortunately, have not done very well in many parts of the world because we killed them in big numbers for their fur, um, you know, and so their numbers decline quite dramatically yeah. uh, across, of course, North America, but also Europe. And then there's been these reintroduction efforts, particularly in Europe, to bring them back to their former areas. And some researchers basically sort of, I guess, tried to summarise all the myriad of benefits that beavers can have. So one of the problems we have at the moment is that we're experiencing these sort of fluctuations between extreme events. So we have big droughts and then we have heavy rainfall events, which, of course, many people in Australia right now are um, suffering Mm. through with with floods. And... um, the rivers and the creeks and so forth can be heavily degraded either way. So if you have a drought, runs out of water. If you're a fish or a macroinvertebrate, so, you know, insects and so forth that live in the water, that's a big problem. You run out of your home. Yeah. 
Likewise, if you have a big flood and it rips through, sorry, and it, and it's not slowed down. Again, that's a big problem. Beavers, of course, busily cut down trees, um, which again is amazing to see in itself. Anyone's mm. not seen a video of beavers actually gnawing away at a tree yeah. and felling a tree. It's quite <coughs> remarkable yeah. to watch. It's the persistence <coughs> in those videos. Unbelievable. Because like, it takes a long yeah. time for them to do it. No, 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 no. I'm no, just, no, just no. going to keep doing this all day <laughs> exactly. and this tree's going down. And there's no yeah. generational problems like, you know, the newer generation of beavers, you know, can't be bothered. <laughs> That's what I like about beavers. The consistency. <laughs> I want to have a whole conversation about millennial beavers, but I think we'll have to leave that for another day. But Laura's voice sounds Laura, Laura's voice sounds young until she says something like that, and then people go, Oh my god. How old are you? Yeah, I'm actually old. Yeah. So I can judge the millennials. <laughs> but what what they've shown is that, of course, by constructing these huge dams that they build, um, which, you know, creates habitat suitable for them, it creates these mm. big ponded areas. Right. That, of course, provides resilience for these systems during drought periods because it creates these sort of deeper lakes, which mm. traps water, less likely to dry out. It also means these lakes um, are cooler in terms of temperature and less likely to what we call get eutrophied, which just basically means nutrient-enriched. So when water's shallow and full of nutrients, algae and so forth can grow really easily. Yep. When they're deeper and colder, less likely to basically become eutrophied. Mm. So, again, that's benef- beneficial for biodiversity. They also have shown that they're helping to break up fires. Because if you imagine a landscape where your creeks are dry, your rivers are dry yeah. through a drought period and there's no sort of um, areas of water that break that up, yeah. the fire can just kind of sweep through the lot. Again, if you've got beavers um, creating these large areas that are flooded because of these dams, that helps to break fires up. And the other thing they do is trap carbon. So they're now also saying that um, beavers are having a benefit for climate change because when you've got these deep, still areas of water, the nutrients basically settle to the bottom and get trapped and you're not losing carbon from the system. So... Um, yeah, there's, there's there's so many reasons to love beavers, but I think this is another great example of sort of, you know, all the ecosystem benefits that a species have. And we often refer to species that have a disproportionate effect on the environment as keystone species. Yeah. And I think we could certainly say that beavers are one of those. So it's a great story. How far spread around the world are beavers? Right across North America yep. and also uh, in, in you know, in Europe as well. So, you know, they have a pretty big distribution, um, mm. you know, in terms of, you know, globally. So we don't have, do we have an equivalent of the beaver? What's, not really, what's, not really no, nothing that sort of creates dams on the scale that beavers do i yeah. mean we have lots of amazing aquatic <clears throat> mammals like the rakali or the australian water rat which are pretty awesome but yeah. they're, they're doing a different <clears throat> thing i think so. I, I love the way our language has taken on some of the you know the the, the beaver mentality you know like yep. you know beavering away yeah leave it to beaver you know yeah. like, we, yep. we have all these phrases because yeah. beavers are just everyone just universally yeah. industrious they're, they're industrious yep. awesome little guys and yep. do some really cool stuff yep. yeah it's, yep. it's, it's it's wicked all right uh i just wanted to mention something quickly before we go to the break around uh, the new telescope going up into space you know not web that's last week <laughs> it's uh we've moved on i'll probably talk about that later in the show actually still excited but um you, have you guys heard of the the nancy grace roman space telescope that's the next one no. i haven't i'm sorry get on board come on <laughs> anyway um look nancy grace roman was a, a a very amazing woman she was you know one of the first i think the first female executive at nasa so wow and in charge of the astronomy programs and was an astronomer herself and just a, a, you know a, a pioneer in terms of women in science and just yeah. did some amazing things and you know there's been some critique over the naming of the webb telescope mm. um you know, and I'm not going to go into that, but yep. there, there are some issues there around who yep. it was named after. And, of course, this one is – there are no issues around this. You know, yeah. This is an amazing researcher who, you know, did some some great things, especially in the – I think it was in the 60s and 70s. She was an executive at NASA. And, you know, 
um, this telescope uh, will be another space telescope. It will be a bit different, though. It's what they call a wide field view telescope. So if you think of most telescopes, when you look through them, you can't see a very wide part of the sky. So you may have heard that story when they were talking about what um, the web images that first came out were, were showing you. In order to get a, a feeling of how much of the sky you're looking at, you had to hold a grain of sand at arm's length up against the sky, and that's how much of the sky wow. you were looking at when you yep. saw those hundreds of galaxies in that image. That's yeah. how small a piece of the sky you were looking at, which is which is amazing in itself. Um, and similar for Hubble, you know, a very small part of the sky. The, the Grace Space Telescope will be looking at something 200 times the width of that. So it's a, a wide view. Wide angle. Wide yeah. angle. Like cameras. Yeah. And, yep. and what that means, of course, is that you'll still – well, the idea behind this telescope – is you'll still get a lot of the the quality of data, but because it's a wide view, you're going to get a lot more. So no mm. no instrument you know in human history will be producing as much data in a sense, well astronomy anyway, as as this space telescope in terms mm. of just how much it's going to be collecting. Which is yeah. you know, now we have data rates that can handle that. You know, like it's it's incredible. So, um, but the reason it's come up this week is because NASA have just awarded the contract to SpaceX to launch it. Yep, and it only costs two hundred and fifty five million. U.S. Yep. yep. Cheap ass. Anyway, I think that sounds like a lot of money. <laughs> but it's, it's incredible, isn't it, now that you know, some of these telescopes are being, they're being launched by commercial suppliers, which is, um, which is a very different model to what we yeah. saw yeah. You know, back in the Hubble days. Um, but you know, these, these contracts are being awarded to companies that are demonstrating success and repeated success mm. and et cetera, et cetera. And apparently 255 million will launch you um, a space telescope. Uh, in I think it's uh, probably be around October 2026. That's that's yep. when it's happening. So some good news there for astronomy and um, and so forth. And I think um, you know Webb's still you know that's all we're talking about the Roman <laughs> telescope for now. We're going to Webb. But the other thing that has come up is um, the space launch system or the, the Artemis um, program, which is the return to the moon and onto Mars program. NASA this week announced uh, the earliest launch date. Which is when they say that it's like it's it's not going to be before that. Yeah, it may not be that day, but the earliest date that we think we can launch it because there's the right um, orientation with the yeah. Earth and the Moon and so forth is the 29th of August this year. Okay, so this will be a uncrewed mission where the crafters uh, essentially gets to the Moon, goes around the Moon, comes back. So yeah. it's a pretty big deal. Um, and it means essentially, you know, we've got the new version of what was the Saturn V extraordinary rocket that put men on men only. As it and was what's the, the primary moon. aim when it's cruising around the moon? Like, what's <clears throat> it hoping to achieve? Well, they'll test a lot of things. I mean, obviously, the rocketry, um, the various stages of the rocketry, all has to be tested. They'll mm. do imaging of the moon itself. Um, it's a full blown. You know, tests similar to what was done in the Apollo days back in the 60s, you know, like Apollo 8, for example, was one of the first ones to actually orbit the moon. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's it's a big journey to So they're crushing days. conspiracy theories at the same time? or Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> it's, it's funny whenever I hear the conspiracy theories and, and people say, oh, you know, it never happened. They never, never landed on the moon. I'm saying, you know, the one thing for me that proves that they did is I just don't believe humans are that good at lying. <laughs> like there was, there would have been so many people involved yes. in faking it. Yeah. And most of them are either dead or close to it now because they'd be yeah. very, very old. And I just don't believe pretty hard keep to pull a secret off. A that global lie. lie would be yeah. pretty hard to pull off for that even, long. It would have come even out if, now. Exactly. To be frank, even <laughs> if it was price. just <laughs> even if, if it was just ten people. Yeah. Like, mm. I just yeah. don't believe people can keep a secret. I that agree long. with you. Yeah. They're not that good at it. Um, we're good at lying in the moment. You know, yeah. Humans are great at that. Yeah. Long term lies where yeah. we think we could make some money yeah. out of it if we told the truth. No, no chance. Yeah. 
Anyway, um, all good stuff. So that's all exciting, and that will be happening, you know, 29th of August to see one of these monstrous rockets, which is, you know, the biggest, essentially, we've seen in a very long time, um, taking off, heading back to the moon, and then with the idea of heading on to Mars beyond that. So, you know, fun stuff, Um, interesting stuff. We're going to take a break, folks, for some music. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our first guest for today from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hang in there. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Jonathan Howe. Jonathan is a senior meteorologist from the Bureau of Meteorology. Welcome to Triple R. Jonathan, how are you going? Thanks, Dr. Shane. No, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in here. Our, our good old friend of the show and former uh, co-host, Andrea Peace, recommended you. So um, you, you've come highly recommended. You know, We believe everything Andrea says on this show. Oh, definitely big <laughs> shoes to fill me being here, but I'll give, give it my best. <laughs> that sounds good. Now, um, first of all, tell us a bit about your day job in the, in the Bureau. Like, what, What's a day look like for you working at the, at the bomb? Yeah, so I'm part of a team of uh, media and communications meteorologists. It's a fairly new team at the Bureau. Uh, generally, meteorologists, you think of forecasters doing the forecast mm. for your city or town or the warnings. But it's a very specialised field where we focus on communicating the weather and forecast and warnings uh, to the general public. So uh, as a result of that, my day starts pretty early. Right. Uh, it starts about 6am. Yep. Uh, the first thing I do is come in, have a look at the computer models overnight and kind of get an idea of my head of what's going on. The media starts around 7 o'clock, so we do a lot of things like live television, uh, mm. generally the breakfast shows, especially if there's a big weather event. We do things like radio, uh, mainly for ABC, but also public um, and kind of um, yeah, private private radio stations. And we also do a lot of briefing as well, not just to mm. um, internally within the Bureau for managers and guess non-meteorologists, but also to our partner agencies in the SES, also ABC Emergency. And throughout the day, we do respond to quite a few ad hoc radio and TV and kind of media requests, uh, but also keeping a very close eye on the weather. We call that weather watching, right. making sure we're aware of what's going on in case we're asked a question at the drop of a hat. So yeah. um, it's an early start, but um, yeah, it's, it's basically quite quite a, quite a dynamic day, especially when we have big weather events, keeps us yeah. quite busy. Yeah. And, and these days, do you guys have your own sort of studios and stuff at the Bureau itself, or is it all done at the main TV channels and so forth? Or do you, like, record your own materials and that, I suspect, these days? We do. Uh, it hasn't um, always been that way. Mm. So at our um, location in Docklands right now, we do have a studio, which hasn't really been much, used much since COVID. We also mm. do have a TV room. So if you're familiar with some of the TV crosses we do, it kind of um, shows to the back main, main operations area. We've got a TV camera set up as well as a green screen in another room. So we do have everything we need there. And uh, But sometimes, for, for day like today, it's always nice to visit the studio and um, yeah. meet presenters and um, host oh, one-on-one. That's the best nice. part. Um, wh- one of the things that still amazes me these days is that, like, on the nightly news, there's still a segment for the weather. I, I-, I find this mm-hmm. interesting that there's still the weather because, like, everyone's glued to the-, the bomb app or whatever app they want all day long. You know, people are checking the weather nonstop. They've got so much access to weather information. It- it's interesting to me that that is still happening. Is that a historical thing or is it, like, why why is it still on the news each night, do you think? In my experience, um, I think Australia is one of the only countries where the weather has its own dedicated segment at the end of the news, right. um, together with places like the United States. And I think that really comes down to how much the weather affects our daily lives. We're mm. such a big country. You know, we love being outdoors and everyone's kind of interested in what the weather's going to bring for what they're going to wear, uh, <laughs> whether it's going to mm. rain. So I think it's a really great thing that we've kind of kept that culture of um, being very weather aware. And of course, now with all technology, there's so many applications that you can use to get your weather away from the nightly news. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know um, 
you know, we, when we look at the apps, like the other day, I noticed the bureau updated something on the bureau's app. I'm not <laughs> sure if you, you you're involved in that, but all of a sudden, the, the rain percentage yes, data became too. far more detailed, and I was yeah. like, "Holy crap! What does this mean?" And yeah. and you know, like I think some of us are a bit more obsessed, obsessed with this than others. I, I you know, I'm sure that's true for me. There's two apps I'm obsessed me with. Too. One is the earthquake app. I'm on it all the time, and the bomb app. Yep. But um, how do you like? How do you know? You know what? What information to give out to the public? Because like, there's so you guys must have so much data in a given hour. You know, how do you triage that down to to what they need? Yeah, there really is a lot of information coming through, and the change you mentioned on our app was one of those great changes you've made, uh, kind of based on public feedback. Where mm. uh, beforehand, and the website we still have this when the app has been updated, we no longer give the chance of rainfall because that was very confusing for people. So now, in the app, if you open it up, you yep. will see that uh, we'll see um, kind of the chance of getting a particular rainfall amount as opposed to the actual chance of rainfall. So it does help to kind of um, communicate that in a yeah. better sense to the public. But yeah, I guess at the bureau, you know, we're all kind of well the nerds we love talking technical <laughs> talking jargon so it is it is really good to make these kinds of changes to make it easier for the public but as you say we're getting information all, all day every day from satellites yeah. uh, from weather models and weather stations so uh, it is a lot to distill down and that's part of the challenge of being yeah. a meteorologist yeah my question sort of following on from that is you know how do you think about and communicate uncertainty and risk so i know for a long time yeah people have sort of been a bit confused about the rainfall but i guess more important things like you know really strong wind events or heavy rainfall events and i know you know um the bomb will say you know there's a chance at this and then something happens and it doesn't happen and people criticize you and people say oh they don't get it right all the time i'm like i'm pretty sure they get it right most, most of the, the time, time actually for it's something that's so incredibly complex so sort of what you know i guess processes and thoughts go into how do you go about communicating the uncertainty and the risk involved with weather because it's not a perfect science you know it's it's really complex and difficult right so yeah how, how do you sort of manage that Absolutely. So weather is an imperfect science. Just definitely hit, hit the nail on the head right there. And uncertainty is a very difficult part of our job. So it really comes down to probabilities, but even probabilities can be quite hard, quite hard to understand. Mm. So um, in terms of this kind of rainfall, that's a really good example. We tend to give ranges of what we expect the rainfall amount to be. And if you say something, it is going to be at least a 25% chance of three millimetres, for yep. example, that does mean that the other seventy five other 75% chance does exist as well. So it's really important to kind of communicate to the public that it is a range, and particularly, if you, for example, even Melbourne, the rainfall amounts across the city aren't going to be the same, yep. but we can only really give one kind of broad rainfall amount for <coughs> the city itself. So definitely is a challenge, and for those bigger... Um, bigger events, things like the huge windstorms mm. or tropical cyclones, that's when it gets a little bit more tricky um, mm. in terms of communicating what we're expecting. Uh, but certainly um, that's kind of yeah, how, 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 how we do it. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan, I remember when Andrea came in here once, uh, we were chatting in the kitchen and she pulled out this photo of herself. And it, for a moment I thought, that's a nice photo, so what? And then I realised there was a tornado in the background and she was sporting this photo. And like, she was just really digging into me that she'd been there and seen it. What, what's the most full-on sort of weather phenomenon that you've seen in your, your time? I mean, it must be exciting to see some things. What, what's really stood out for you? So Andrea and quite a few other my colleagues are just absolutely nuts for tornadoes yeah. and twisters. Personally, I probably can't say the same. Um, I only saw the movie Twister quite a, quite a little, little bit of time ago, and I couldn't couldn't imagine myself putting, putting myself in that situation, yeah. chasing tornadoes around. But no, good on them for doing that. Uh, for myself, though, I think one of the most striking things I've seen recently was um, some of the satellite pictures coming out for the Black Summer bushfires, right. particularly the one over Gippsland. Yep. And people yeah. would have seen the smoke and ash cloud 
piling into the Tasman Sea and mm. all the way around the Southern, Southern Ocean. That, for me, is something I'll never forget. Yeah. Seeing yeah, those firestorms seeing those as well. Fires. They were frightening. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, fire actually. Fire in the clouds, essentially. <clears throat> and and, and there, those, some of those images are just phenomenal, aren't they? I mean, I, I remember when I was... Um, I, was, I think I was in grade six in primary school, so this must have been. I don't want to give out too much information here, but let, let's just say it was in the early eighties. <laughs> this is the dust storm, uh, isn't it? The dust storm. I was at the pool. I yeah. remember it vividly. And looking out a second floor window, looking yep. west, yep. and this yep. dust, this rot like a roll cloud. You know, everything went red. Just yep. just coming at the building, and and you know, it was end of day stuff for us kids. We didn't know yep. what was going on, and and I can still see it. You know, I still remember that from yep. when I was I don't know ten years of age, whatever yeah. it was, and I think some of those. Uh, quite phenomenal. I, I spent some time in Fiji too at the edge of a cyclone and just, whoa, you know, just the electricity sort of in the air was phenomenal. But anyway, we should, we, we digress. One, one of the reasons we, uh, you, know, I, you know, I always go a bit crazy when we have people know it's about such weather. such a great topic. But um, one of the reasons we wanted to get you on was to talk to you about La Nina and what's going on there. So can you just give us quickly a rundown of what La Nina is before we get into what's happening across the eastern states in particular? Yeah, so La Nina has been all over the news. Um, you know, it's hard to open the news these days and not see the word La Nina. It's it really affected a lot of people's lives across Australia, but also across the world as well. In a nutshell, the easiest way to explain La Nina is that it's a climate pattern or phase where the waters to the north of Australia are warmer than usual, and that causes more cloud and rain across our region. And it's part of a, a part of a broader cycle we call El Nino Southern Oscillation, and that's a kind of um, a general kind of circulation that covers the entire Pacific Ocean in a neutral kind of phase of the, of the ENSO. That's when we do see warm waters come towards Australia and Indonesia. But during La Nina, these winds are pushing the water across get even stronger. And we start to see these warm waters pile up to the north of our country. And so that's why we see these bigger rainfall events. And uh, most Australians would probably be more familiar with El Nino. Yeah. That's the opposite of La Nina, mm. basically the other side of the coin there. Um, but basically, it's a global circulation. And uh, we have seen two La Ninas now back-to-back, mm. and that's caused quite a, bit, quite a lot of rainfall across the east of the so, country. So we're quite accustomed, I think, in Australia to, you know, like 10-year-long droughts. So, you know, one part of that cycle can last for very protracted periods, I assume. And But La Nina, is that more commonly shorter term, just one or two years? Or do we know? Yeah, so La Nina um, tends to kind of peak around the end of the year, and, the, and, and that's the Southern Hemisphere summer. And you are, you are right that the, the impacts don't tend, tend to last as long. You know, mm. we, in Australia, we're so used to droughts, and we've seen quite a few Niños over the last 10 to 15 years. Yep. The last La Nina we've seen before the previous one was back in 2010, 2011, but since then, we've had quite a few Niños. So that's why the Australian public is a bit more mm. familiar with that drier phase. Yep. We do see those droughts and big bushfires. Yeah. How long do we think this one will, you know, progress into the future at this point do we have i know you guys can predict some of that like what are the thoughts so the uh, the most previous la nina we have declared to be over this mm-hmm. is the one that brought those floods to parts of sydney and also lismore earlier this year yep. uh, it has dropped below thresholds so we are um, no longer in la nina phase but we have kept it at, at, at the kind of watch phase because we are um, possibly looking at a third la nina coming on wow. later this spring so yeah. that's a that's three in a row that's quite rare the last time we saw that was back in uh 1998 to 2001, and we've only mm. seen three triple La Ninas in the last century or so. Wow. So if you do get that, that's, that's quite a rare thing, and yeah. it does mean more rain for Australia. Yeah, indeed. Just following on from that, I've seen people sort of on social media joking about La, La Normal <coughs> rather than La Nina. And correct me if I'm wrong, is, is, it, is it the case that 
with the sort of predictions of climate change that La Nina events will become far more regular in, in you know, Australia and particularly obviously southeastern Australia. So the relationship between climate change and La Nina and El Nino is not quite clear-cut at this stage. Yep. Uh, we do have an idea, for example, the latest um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, report did say that we are likely to see more extreme La Ninas mm. and El Ninos. But some other reports also kind of say that um, you know, mm. it, it, it basically increase the frequency as well. So not a huge amount of studies being done so far, <laughs> but it seems to be over the last 50 years that every time we do get El Nino or La Nina event, they tend to be more extreme. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've, I've always wondered with regards to weather patterns for Australia is uh, how much of the year is our weather impacted by Antarctic sort of aspects? Because, you know, we often hear those stories about, you know, an Antarctic blast. And, you know, there's all these new terms coming out at the moment. And I figure half of them are made up by the media and have nothing to do with you. Got like a, it's a, sorry, I digress again. Is a rain bomb a thing? Is that a thing? I heard this recently. There's a rain bomb coming. Is that? Did you guys use that term? It's the bane of my existence, really. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the official word is that it's not a scientific term that we use. Uh, It's something that the media tends tends to use to make it a little bit more colourful, easy to understand. But it's not the worst analogy. You know, it's a lot of rain (laughs) coming down from the sky. So for some people, it really does appear to be a bit of a bomb, but not something we technically use. Well, especially because you guys call yourselves the bomb. I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) it's getting confusing. But with the Antarctic weather, sorry, the... You know, we often hear that of an Antarctic blast mm. coming up, and the fix seems to. You know, the last few weeks, you know, we've had some really cold weather in Melbourne. For, for how much of the year does does sort of that region of the world affect us here in Australia? Is it the whole year, or is it just in the middle of winter? So, it really, does come down to what we call the westerly bands of winds that uh, kind of coincide with the jet stream. Mm. So, over the winter, we see these bands of really strong westerly winds push up over the southern or south of Australia, and these that these are the. Um, uh, this, this is what brings those cold fronts coming through uh, parts of southwest WA, parts of the southeast, bringing those winter outbreaks, um, pushing snow across the Alps as well. During the summertime, we do see those strong westerly winds push further south towards Antarctica. Hmm. That's, that's basically why we don't see those kind right. of cold fronts coming through. But we definitely can see these protrusions up from Antarctica any time of the year. Yeah, interesting. Now, the other thing I wanted to touch base with you on, you, you mentioned the bushfires and some of the things you'd seen last year is that, you know, we know that these fires set up their own weather patterns. How does the Bureau deal with that? Because I know, you know, you guys have obviously your array of sensors and, mm-hmm. and various collection points around the, around the country. But often these fires hit areas where, you know, there's sparse population, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how do you deal with that with regards to local weather reporting for fire crews and so forth, where it's, you know, literally lives are dependent on that, when it's potentially in regions where you, I assume, have fewer assets? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, so we work very closely with the fire services, so whether that's mm. the, the CFS, CFA, or the SES kind of thing. We work very closely with giving forecasts. When we do expect to be uh, there to be a big fire, we tend to send out weather stations, so portable weather stations, to give us real-time updates, right. and we use those to um, provide very detailed forecasts for the firefighters um, for that location. But, of course, fire meteorology itself is a very difficult um, aspect of meteorology. You've got effects like terrain and also vegetation type, and as a result of that, we are changing our fire danger rating system this year okay. to reflect some of those changes. So very difficult um, task, but um, yeah, we definitely have very good computer models to help us with that right now. Yeah. Do you, do you still have a lot of volunteers out there sending in data? Because, you know, the, the age of satellites mm. and so forth, things have changed a lot, but you know, the, the Bureau has always made use of you know, an extensive network of volunteers. Is that is that still in play? We love our volunteers. <clears throat> um, we have a lot of private rain gauges. Mm. So the Bureau operates a couple of hundred, but we have thousands of other rain gauges on farms, private property, which 
all gets fed into um, our systems and we use every single day. We also have weather watchers uh, that take photos for us, post to social media. Uh, so we really rely on our volunteers out there. So definitely encourage people to keep sending us photos, You know, keep having weather stations out there and keep their interest in weather yeah, alive. it's cool stuff. And Jonathan, something I really want to know is what are the predictions for the next summer in Australia? Because we're all watching the 40-degree days <laughs> yep. in the UK and that's just something I couldn't <clears throat> believe was possible. So how bad is it going to be? So if the predictions come true, we are basically um, staring down this La Nina again heading into summer, which would mean uh, a cooler and wetter summer like we've seen over the past two years. Uh, of course, you know, in Melbourne this, this year, this summer, we didn't actually have any 40-degree days, yeah. which is quite rare for Melbourne if you yeah. think about it, and also last summer as well. So that's two summers, no days about 40 degrees. But, of course, we've seen all those heat waves across not just Europe but also Asia and Africa, and once this La Nina phase ends and we go back into that neutral mm. or the next El Nino, that's when we could see you know these very very high temperatures. And you know, coming off the black summer um, a couple mm. of years ago, um, definitely a bit of a scary thought to think yeah. of what we could see. It's disturbing stuff. And the part that we often forget about is the overnight lows. Yeah, people don't talk about that as much. But I remember a few years back, there were the overnight lows were really high. Like the average was mm. like ridiculously high for summer. Like that must be something that. You know, it's been shifting over the years as well. So overnight minimums, um, definitely. So I remember when I, when I was a kid um, growing up in east of Melbourne, our bird bath would freeze over right, yeah. um, mm. almost yep. a, a every night. Of week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, it's pretty rare. Yeah. And we had a couple of one-degree mornings in Melbourne earlier this week, and that's that's pretty rare these days. A couple, a couple of decades ago, yeah. you couldn't bat an eyelid. But nowadays, it's getting harder and harder to get those really, really cold nights. Um, but, of course, conversely with La Nina, we do tend to see more cloudy nights, and that's yep. why that pushes the temperature up overnight. The blanket of cloud. Exactly. keeping us all warm yeah. I, yeah I dropped off my son the other day on that freezing cold morning to school and you know there was so much ice on the grass in places and I said to him you've got to go to the Oval straight away because you'll be able to write your name you know I was thinking, <laughs> this is stuff that we comment we didn't even think twice about this when we were kids and but now you just don't see that anymore it's so rare exactly to see right. that and he was like fascinated by it and I thought wow you know it's so cool that kids are you know getting to see some of that cool stuff that I we had saw. to de-ice my car I had a flashback <laughs> being in England like in fact I would use that as a story as oh since I moved to Australia I don't have to de- ice my car in the morning (laughs) (laughs) well Jonathan thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today It's it's always great whenever we have people from the bureau in because it's such a fascinating area and I think, you know, people are so obsessed with the weather, especially yeah. in Melbourne. They really are. Yeah, well, because, you know, we get four seasons in one day most days. Have so, a song you know, about it. Cool stuff. We do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, know, you guys keep up the good work because I know, as Ewan said, every now and then, you know, you get some people critiquing the Bureau. But uh, to be honest, these days, the, the forecasts are so damn good. And I'm they're in so I'm detailed. I'm in awe of what they do. Yeah. Um, given the complexity yeah. of the system, you know, true chaos systems you're dealing with and the complexity of those and being yeah. able to, you know, give us, you know, I mean, the idea of a seven day forecast even if it's 50 percent right for me is just ridiculously staggering yeah Yeah. amazing stuff so jonathan great talking to you uh good luck with the ongoing work there at the bureau sounds like you're having a lot of fun and um keep up the good comms that you guys are all doing thanks dr shane pleasure folks we're going to take a short break for some important station announcements and we're going to come back and talk about the state of the environment report with you and triple r Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R, and uh, we are now going to dive into the State of the Environment report. Is it in a good state, Ewan? Uh, look, it's not in a great state. So the I'd advise if you're bad. listening right now, 
grab some chocolate. Uh, it's probably a little bit early for wine and beer and things like that. Um, but yeah, make yourself comfortable because it's not good reading. Right. But we need to do this. I think this is an important discussion for us to have. And you and I have been talking about the environment on the show. Mm. Well, you know, me for 30 years, you for 15 or whatever it is. Too um, many. Too many. <laughs> but um, this is an important document that's come out this week. Yeah. So look, the 2021 State of Environment Report uh, was released uh, earlier this week um, at the National Press Club um, by uh, Tanya Plipersek. And it's a really important report. It's the most comprehensive environmental report that Australia has. You can think of it a little bit akin to sort of an IPCC report, but based on Australia, and it is literally everything to do in the environment. So whether it's threatened species, whether it's the condition of our waterways, air, soils, the works. So it it is a massive document. Um, I was given the... um, overview document on embargo and that itself runs at 274 pages the main document is about 1200 pages i haven't read it all (laughs) i can say why not yeah look some other things to do but um you know the point is that I, i guess for someone like myself and many scientists and people who follow these issues there's really not all that much new in here mm. but i think when you see it all put together it is really confronting yeah. so we was, know yeah so i was just gonna say it was interesting because i was you know diving into a little bit because mm. i've got a, a very detailed website mm. you know, i almost used the word complicated because it, it yeah. is actually complicated to get into yeah but there there is certainly more of an indigenous focus to some of the the stuff so yeah. that part it seems so, is a new aspect so that is absolutely a new aspect aspect so there's three main authors um dr terry jake uh, is actually an indigenous woman herself and mm-hmm. she's one of the lead authors which is great to see and as you said there's also indigenous co-authors and i yep. think that is a really welcome change, obviously, with this report, is that it has a really strong focus on Indigenous knowledge, but also, importantly, the impact of environmental deterioration and degradation on Indigenous people, both Mm. in terms of their health, but also, of course, their culture. Um, And the important thing about this document is it's not just reporting, of course, everything that's gone wrong and how bad things are, but it does also, of course, promote a pathway to actually fixing things and, you know, mm. what needs to change. So I'll get to that later uh, in this interview. But, you know, we, we know the issues. We know the Great Barrier Reef, as an example, has had multiple bleaching events since 2016, including in this year, which 90% of the area surveyed over the Great Barrier Reef showed signs of bleaching. We know that there's now 1,900-plus threatened species and ecological communities in Australia. We know the koala is now listed as endangered uh, mm. in Queensland, New South yeah. Wales and the ACT. Um, the greater glider, there's three species of greater glider now, has now been uplisted to endangered in New South Wales and Victoria. The list goes on and on and mm. on. So it, it is a really important document. As I said, um, it, it covers uh, 12 environmental themes, so air quality, Antarctica, biodiversity, climate, coasts, extreme events. So it looks at weather patterns and the the importance of extreme events, which sort of dovetails nicely what we are talking about before, is that one of the things I think that's interesting in this report is that in the past, going back probably more than sort of 10 years or so, ecologists and environmental scientists like myself talked about climate change as this sort of threat on the horizon. Yeah. It's happening. We're we're living through it now. So it's no longer a case of if we don't do this, this might happen. We're seeing it. An extreme example of that would be that a few years ago, 23,000 flying foxes, spectacled flying foxes, died in Cairns as a result of an extreme heat event. So Mm. uh, flying foxes, which are really important for pollinating our forests and spreading seeds, in some cases over thousands of kilometres. So grey-headed flying foxes can move 2,500 kilometres plus a year. Wow. Staggering. Yeah. They really don't do very well with extreme heat events. So 
it's not just that, of course, that, you know, the temperature is increasing, but it's those days where you get several hot days, really hot days in a row, they just can't cope. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good example of the, the, the devastating effect of those extreme events. Yep. Of course, we've seen the floods as well. So th- there's, there's <clears throat> many different aspects to look at, and we, we mentioned the fires as well. Mm. So, you know, in that 2019-20 period, um, more than 20 million hectares of, you know, land was burnt over that period. So to get your head around that, Tasmania is roughly 6.8 million hectares. Right. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so a few talking, Tasmanians. Yeah. We're talking about a yeah. big chunk of area. Um, and there's a range of threats, that, of course. So along with climate change, which is not only a threat in of itself, but it's also compounding other threats, so including fire. Mm. So we have these big drought periods that leads to a higher likelihood of fire and more severe fires. Yep. Land clearing is and habitat destruction still remains one of the biggest problems in Australia. So since uh, 1990, more than 6.1 areas of what we call inverted commas like pristine sort of really good condition forest has been cleared. So again, roughly not dissimilar in size to Tasmania Mm. and much larger area than that of sort of already modified areas has been cleared too. Mm. And, you know, when we talk about clearing, the problem with, you know, losing habitat is that we can't just bring it back quickly either. So if you think about old trees, the hollows in those trees that provide homes yeah. for things like possums, um, birds, reptiles, a whole range of fauna, they can take more than 100 or 150 years to form. So even yeah. if we stop doing what we're doing now in terms of deforestation and logging, it's going to take a long time to repair those those, yeah. those issues. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I was having a bit of a play around with the website because actually, you know, it's a, it's a data gold mine. It is actually. huge. There's so much there, and I yeah. thought, okay, I'll jump into air quality. Yeah. And I jumped into air quality, and I end up. I, this is a rabbit hole I went down, mm. but I ended up under carbon monoxide. Yep. And you know, I was pleasantly surprised that the carbon monoxide levels are subtly, you know, going down. They're not going yep. down rapidly, but they are heading in the right direction mm. at least, which was, which was good. So not everything in there is you no. Know, Problematic. I mean, the the base level of what the CO levels are is still probably not the best, but but you know it wasn't going up. So I yeah. thought, okay, you know that's something. You know, and we could probably have a bigger impact on that if we wanted to. Um, you know, with electric vehicles, but you know, yeah, there there there, there are definitely some good news stories, and I think that points to the fact that. We can change these things. So, you know, things like numbats, as an example, mm. have had a population increase. So it's not the case that everything is bad. I think, you know, one of the take-home messages, which was a headline, you know, in the media, was that there's these ratings, um, you know, for state of environment poor that basically say very poor, poor, good or very good. Yep. We're sitting at <clears throat> poor across everything. And worse than that, we're deteriorating. So the yep. only area that didn't show a big um, sort of negative decline was urban environments, which makes sense in some ways when you think about it because they're already heavily modified. That's not to say also that we can't do a lot more in our urban environments to actually make them even more wildlife friendly and better um, environmentally Mm. speaking. So we're not tracking the right way. Interesting. All right, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements and when we come back we're going to move into what we can do. Or what's next? Or do we just all throw the cards in the you know, throw the table over? Never and give say, up. We're done. Never give up. Um, we've been saying that for a while, so hopefully there's some there's some good options. We'll be back in a moment, folks. Uh, here's some important stuff from Triple R. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on Triple R. You and I and Laura. Are 
you know, slowly but surely trudging through the State of the Environment report. <laughs> um, it, it comes out every five years? Is that every right? five years, yeah. that's right. Because this is the first time, I think, for me anyway, it's been really high on the agenda publicly. I think part of that was that the former government decided not to release it for so mm. long, and that um, created a lot of um, disquiet, shall we say, yeah. amongst the community. Um, yeah. And, you know, we were talking about this before the show, the current government was pointing the finger at the former government in terms of performance. I think that was disappointing to see. And I say that because in Australia, uh, local government, state governments and federal governments are all responsible for the environment. Yep. And, you know, as I've said in, in other sort of, um, you know, interviews this week is that no, no political party, political suasion has a reason to be proud this week. And yep. I think we need to get away from sort of the politics of... Um, why we're in this mess and actually focus on the solutions, which are at hand. And that's that's the really important thing is that, like climate scientists, you know, we know the answers. We have yeah. the expertise in, in, in this country to fix the problem. So yep. let's forget about the politics and just get on with it. Yep. Yeah, which is great because, um, yeah, as, as you were saying, this got a lot of press. And one of the articles I read, which was pretty prominent, is, you know, this report's come out and then it was like, and we are all doomed. Yep. So I kind of thought that was pretty strong. So I'm glad you're going to tell us what we could do to fix it. <laughs> we're, we're not all doomed. Um if we continue the way we are, then it's not looking great, but I hope that we don't continue that way. So I think there's at least five things that come to mind at a government level that need to change. The first is we definitely need to have stronger environment laws and policies that are aligned and enforced. So um, we've had a review into the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is like the, the really most important legal um, and, uh, structure and law that protects the environment. And uh, Professor Graham Samuel conducted that review with many experts, and that made 38 recommendations, including having proper environmental standards mm. that measured outcomes, including having an independent umpire that basically followed up on activities, including government as well, uh, and a whole range of other suite of changes that were needed. So we need to act on that. But... We simply can't, you know, have, um, you know, stated sort of goals of conserving the Great Barrier Reef and then still commit to approving new coal mines. The two are just mm. incompatible. So we need to yeah. align policy and we need to enforce, you know, legislation. So, you know, there was a study that showed that basically land clearing rates are completely outstripping all the tree planting exercises that we have in Australia for carbon abatement. So even though mm. people are doing these wonderful things, planting trees, which stores carbon, also has biodiversity benefits, the land clearing rates are currently outstripping that. So yeah. that needs to change. Um, money... Is, is critical. So it's been estimated that for around $1.7 billion per annum, which is really not a lot of money in terms of our um, total Australian budget, yep. you could recover our threatened species that are listed. Um, and we spend about 5%, we think, on conservation in terms of the amount required. So only 5%. So there's a lot more that needs to happen there. So we have goodwill, we have the expertise, but we just don't invest in the environment. I say the word invest deliberately because... Yeah, it is an investment yeah. because it keeps us happier, keeps us healthier, it drives our economy, has cultural benefits, the works. I, I think, too, there's there's an element of – and this is the part I, I've never really got my head around in Australia because I, I think Australians in general have a lot of um, pride of the nation they live in. You know, Absolutely. We, we go overseas and we, you know, we, we know people like Australia. You know, we, yep. There's a lot of pride there. Yep. But I have to say, for me – knowing that we are in this state of, you know, as you say, our rating is poor mm. – I don't really want to talk about this stuff when I go overseas because no. I'm embarrassed by it, actually. Yeah. And, and when you talk about you know under $2 billion, which, sorry, would we notice? No. I've got to say, like you know, the amount of debt and stuff going around the moment, yeah. with, with COVID and all the stuff going, would we notice? No. Whereas the, the impact that that would have 
and the way in which Australia would be seen internationally mm. in terms of its environmental impact and what we're doing about these threatened species, you know, is, is worth, what, 50 times that. I just think it's, um, as you say, it's an investment, yeah. but it's an investment that pays off in a very major yeah. way. Um, it's not, you know... And, and has benefits that you can't even measure. So as I mentioned <clears throat> before, you know, we know that all these native species have incredible value for First Nations people. Mm. You can't put a dollar value on that. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and for local communities and individuals, it means something to have these animals around you and these plants and so forth. So, yeah, it's a tiny amount of money. Yeah, so well, something I'm not on top of is, has there been a government response to the report? Is there, Are they going to take action? Yeah, so the, the Labor government um, has committed um, to responding um, to, first of all, the Graham Samuels report um, by the end of the year. Um, so they're going to make all those records? You know, take on those Respond recommendations. Respond is the word. Respond. Yeah. So, so got, that doesn't necessarily watch, uh, mean commit to every th- every yeah. one of the thirty eight recommendations. Yeah. Sorry, Laura, but you've got to watch the show The Hollow Men from <laughs> was around two thousand eight or so, around the time when Rudd was in power, um, because that will tell you how this works. You know, they're they're committed to a response. Uh, yeah. And so, then after that will be a report. Yeah. And, an, and a task, task force. force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, to, to their credit, they have committed to increasing funding uh, for Indigenous ranger programs, which mm, is a which wonderful is example. Yep. They are incredibly successful and, again, have multiple benefits. They've committed to more areas under reserve for, our, you know, both on land and in water. Mm. So, that, that's a good thing, as long as there's money that also comes for actually managing those national parks mm. and so forth. Mm. Um, but they have been pressed, as an example, on fossil fuels and, of course, the, the, you know, how that's tied in with um, climate change and you know, impacts things like the Great Barrier Reef, and they've been pretty non-committal on that, as we all know. So they will respond to it. It's early days, and I think we have to be fair to the current minister that she's been in the job for about six weeks, I think, yeah. so it's pretty early days. Yeah. Um, so, look, there, there is a lot that needs to change. I think... Obviously, we need to tackle the threats in terms of invasive species, land clearing, uh, climate change, pollution, of course, microplastics in Mm. the oceans. We all know about the issues there. As we touched on at the start of this, uh, Indigenous people, First Nations, have a massive role here. And I think it's great to see that recognised in the report. And I think it's part of, hopefully, a a growing trend towards... um, self-determination in land management so indigenous people actually having ownership over and controlling essentially how land is managed Mm. and of course we non-indigenous people learning from their tens of thousands of years of experience managing this country and respecting that so i think that 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 needs to obviously improve further Um, and i think the other thing is sort of again sort of related to the politics but more again sort of in general is that we need to work together more so Again, I've seen reporting this week, you know, pointing the finger at farmers as an example. Mm. And we all eat, you know, yeah. we all consume. So, again, mm. I think it's very unfair to sort of point the finger at a particular group. And we know that there are, you know, large numbers of people in the farming community doing things like regenerative agriculture. We know that there's a group called Farmers for Climate Action. Mm. You know, farmers themselves are absolutely at most threat from climate change because of how it's going to impact their production. Yeah. So I think, again, rather than sort of seeking to assign blame and point the finger at particular groups, really what we should be doing is actually working together a lot more. Um, again, we have the expertise and the solutions. So, you know, it's really more mm. about sort of political will and the investment in that. So yeah. I, I don't see it all as doom and gloom at all. I think there's, there's <clears throat> this massive opportunity sitting there for us to actually tackle this. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I often think back to... 
you know, and Australia tends to always come back with this, but, you know, the hill soist and the lawnmower, <laughs> I think. But there's opportunities here for us to really, you know, show the world some innovation in, mm. in this space and show that we can do this in a way that the rest of the world has not yet managed to. Mm. And, you know, very few parts of the world have, you know, such an incredible fauna as, as we do. I think there's, a, there's an element of that that I have to say I'm always amazed with. And, you know, you, you see that just by the, the you know, there is – you know, nothing that says to me that a kangaroo and a koala should be on the same planet, let alone mm. <laughs> like these things are so you know they're so different, and you know there's so so much extraordinary stuff there that you know that diversity you know is something mm. that is of huge value to this country and oh, it, and it defines to, us. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really it's part, extraordinary. Of, it's part of our culture. So now before yeah. we go, yeah. we should mention the other thing you're working on. Yes, yeah, yes, which is yes. a good news story, I think. So in the state of environment report. You know, one of the horrible headlines was that 39 mammals, native mammals, mm-hmm. uh, have um, been basically driven to extinction by us since European colonisation. Yep. Counter to that, um, uh, myself and with uh, Cosmos magazine and, and many co-authors, we've been um, publishing information about mammals as part of a competition called Australian Mammal of the Year. And it's not really about who wins, but really the whole exercise is um, promoting this amazing mammal fauna that we have. So more than 300 species. I think most people could name a koala, a kangaroo, yeah. a wombat, platypus, echidna. Not many more, right? Yeah. We have this incredible diversity of mammals. And so there's eight groups. If you if you go to the Cosmos website, Australian Mammal Year, you'll find them. Um, and, yeah, we've been releasing huge amounts of information. That's, that's going really well. So I think get behind that, become aware of these amazing animals you have and, and do things, of course, that you know that can help these animals and, of course, yeah. uh, wildlife and biodiversity more generally. But, Ewan, who is the winner? You said the. Come on. We don't know yet. Well, we don't know yet. Is there a top 10 at this point? Who's your number one? Uh, Who's my number one? I keep getting asked that. I mean, look, I've got a soft spot for the dingo. I think we all know that because I worked on them for so long. Um, But there's others that I really love, like the striped possum, um, Mm. you know, the crest-tailed mulgara, which is kind of quoll-looking animal but much smaller. Ghost bats are pretty awesome. There's so many to choose from. So you've got to jump on the site and check them all out. But, uh, yeah, the... Top 10, so at the, at the moment it's like the World Cup, we're in the group yep. stage, there's yep. eight groups. That will get reduced to a top 10 uh, August 11, and okay. then there'll be about a week or so of the actual final vote, and that's where the real fun and games That's where the, the fun begins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, it sounds awesome. I mean, we've seen this with, I think there's some bird thing that's similar, but birds, birds, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Let's focus on these mammals. I think, um, you know, but this would be great to get schools involved in that too, so that more and more kids learn about some of these, these things that, you know, to be frank, I've heard of them from you. Yeah, I've never. No, heard we learn about you know and, lions yeah. and zebras and elephants and so forth oh, in primary school, yeah. but hardly anything about our mammals. Yeah, yeah, so I think there's a great opportunity there for people to learn more about what some of the really special things are here yeah. in Australia and why we should be protecting them yeah. more than we currently are. So yeah, yeah. all right, Ewan. Well, thanks so much for giving us the uh, the detailed news around the State of Environment report. Hopefully, we will see some very substantial. Action leading to a meeting, leading to a report, leading to a task force, <laughs> and then maybe, maybe leading to something real on the ground. But Let's uh, hope so. Uh, we'll see. Dr. Laura, good to see you again as well. Great uh, to see you. Going to go Google Ghost Bat. <laughs> Liv has been doing a Twitter feed for us and is here in the studio as well, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go-Go today. We will have another great show for you next week. But until then, we're going to leave you from the fabulous team from Eat It. Cam is right over there, ready to go. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast.
and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.